Good morning, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and you're listening to Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Coming to you from the Inland Pacific Northwest, United States of America, on the 1st of February, 2023. This is going to be lecture number 24, by my reckoning, in immunoepigenetics. We have been doing a few lectures just recently over the weekend, going into the principle of specific reason and trying or a sufficient reason and trying to explain how that principle to acquire an understanding of an entire process by apprehending those microstate processes which are within the unitary process as being fundamental and necessary and therefore universal for that entire process to function. And we were bringing that in for a discussion of research science. And then, of course, interlacing that into uh, intermediary biochemistry by relating it to cell biology, cell physiology. So we're going to get back to that. We haven't finished that micro arc of lectures. But I like to put that kind of sequence of events in a series of lectures within a larger context of the arc that we're doing in immunoepigenetics so that we can counterbalance our discussion of deeply involved examination of a very specific pathology and uh, associated mechanisms that regulate that pathology. And here we're talking about epigenetic retailering of the immune response, particularly the inflammatory or anti-inflammatory responses in uh, humans. We're interlacing that with a, a larger understanding of what we mean by research science so that I, I, I basically remind myself that all I'm describing to you are what we see in the primary published literature. And so I want to make it clear that when new papers come out and these new papers might either advance previously published material or refute it, that that's not anything that's um, contradictory to our understanding of research. In fact, it's the way research science works. It is constantly what you could be called a movable feast. And that's because all we're trying to do with research science is to evaluate natural phenomena. In our case, we're looking at living systems and very specifically, in my case, biochemical uh, pathways and biochemical interactions in cells and in whole organisms. So right now we're back to immunoepigenetics, where we maybe in some people's minds should have been all along. Okay, now we've been talking about antimicrobial peptides. Now that was how they were first described, although now in the literature, I can say that there's a super family of peptides known as HDPs. These are host defense peptides. And they're considered to be absolutely necessary to be a component of the innate immune response because these host defense peptides have been associated with the protection of organisms from infection and also from hyperinflammation. So we talked about the defensins and the catholicidins. Now, those are two significant families of HDPs in mammals, including humans. So 
one of the components of the endogenous defenses in cathelicidins relates to the mitogen-activated protein kinase, nuclear factor kappa B, and histone deacetylase signaling. That last component, of course, is an epigenetic erasure process. And all those play actually very significant roles in the induction and utilization of these defense in cathelicidin um, mediated responses. Endogenous defensins induced by nutrients actually may be a very significant way to move out of the use of antibiotics when disease is caused by a pathogenic, for example, bacterial agent. And that's because the use of antibiotics, prophylactic antibiotics, or simply the excessive use of antibiotics is driving mutation in bacteria, making those bacteria resistant to antibiotics and therefore useless, particularly in the hospital and clinical settings. All right, so I want to make sure that you get an idea why, you know, that that's like more of a commercial reason why people are interested in these uh, defenses, right? These, these host defense peptides. Now, I want to remind you, the innate immune system is the first line of defense in terms of the immune consortium. It essentially attempts at the very initial stages to even prevent an infection. So you have these host defense peptides. Again, they're also known as antimicrobial peptides in the slightly older literature. And they are found in all forms of life, including Monera, fungi, planta, insecta, uh, avians, crustaceans, amphibians, and of course, in mammals. Now, these HDPs consist of a sequence of amino acids, which are uh, tend to be cationic. And because they have a cationic domain and then a non-cationic domain, they generate an amphipathic chemistry. And they can vary in size as well from only a very short peptide, such as, say, 5 to 10 amino acids, to well over 100. The one we had been talking about was 37, if you recall, the LL37 component of the CAMP. Now, in mammals... Most of these host defense peptides are expressed on mucosal surfaces. And where do you find those? GI tract, the urogenital, as well as, of course, in the respiratory tract, the lungs. And they play a very unusual role in, in innate immunity in that they are a direct line of defense, but they also function at the level of alteration of gene expression and indeed bioenergetics and other metabolic activity. So they have multiple roles in the cell because they lead from the innate and then to the adaptive immune response. And that adaptive or acquired immune response is then going to bring in the, the much stronger heavy hitters in the immune, particularly pro-inflammatory response, and those are the T and B lymphocytes. Okay. Now, I've also found in the literature that these 
um, host defense peptides have a profound effect on the in situ regulation of inflammation. And we've been talking, the way we led into this topic, was a discussion of the osteoarthritic wound healing response. And remember, that included both an innate immune and an adaptive immune alteration of that infect, of that potentially infection, uh, infectious court, but which primarily was simply an inflammatory court generated from the synovial component of the chondrocyte. Okay, and remember that, all that discussion. That's how we kind of got here. So I want to remind you that the defensins are non-glycosylated, nevertheless secreted peptides. And they can be classified into the alpha defenses, defensins, which are found in almost all mammals, the beta form, which are present only in vertebrates, and then the theta defensins, which are found in specifically primates, such as humans. So the cathelicidins contain a highly conserved domain with an analog to that of something called cathelin. Now, cathelin is a porcine, that means it comes from hogs, cysteine protease inhibitor. Now, we talked about protease inhibitors in the past. Protease inhibitors are often found in plants. And so that's why certain animals, monogastric in particular, can't consume certain raw agricultural products. For example, hogs can't be fed raw soybeans because they have a trypsin inhibitor. That is the raw soybean does. And the trypsin inhibitor would prevent the hogs from digesting protein. So if you feed hogs soybean, you have to cook the soybean first to destroy the trypsin inhibitor, you see? So this has, this is a huge agricultural animal science and plant science uh, uh, component to it that I've lectured on in the past. <clears throat> now, again, okay, so think about this. These cathelicidins were named that because a portion of a conserved domain in these, remember what they are, antimicrobial or defensive peptides, they have a, a domain which actually has the same sequence or very similar sequence to a porcine cysteine protease inhibitor, right? So what are proteases doing naturally? They're all part of a defense process as well, and also convert convertase activities, as we talk about a lot in biochemistry, particularly when we talk about proteins. So proteases are classified according to their catalytic site. And you get four major classes. You get the cysteine proteases, which this cathelicidin has a domain similar to. You also have serine proteases. We talked a lot about those in the past in intermediary metabolism. Aspartate proteases, same deal, same kite, similar kite. And then finally, of course, the matrix metalloproteases. So those are the four types. So cysteine proteases are found within what's known as the papain family. First isolated from the plant, 
papaya. And so not only do plants have protease inhibitors, they also have very potent proteases, right? Okay. So the papain family of enzymes are involved in multiple functions, such as the extracellular matrix turnover. So although they're not matrix metalloproteases, they're nevertheless found there. But also cysteine proteases are involved in antigen presentation retailering and processing events. Cysteine proteases are also important in mammalian digestion, the immune response, hemoglobin hydrolysis. Now that's associated with certain parasitic infections and, and therefore parasitic egress. So cysteine proteases have a lot of, um, uh, a, a, a lot of component in the primary literature particularly as it relates to parasites and to infections in general, because some parasites carry their own cysteine proteases, what I'm saying. In fact, some of them play a key role that some of those cysteine proteases for hemoglobin hydrolysis, and that would then result in blood cell invasion. Okay. Now, in mammals, a group of cysteine proteases are known as the lysosomal Cathepsins. And that comes from the Greek cathepsine to digest. Okay, so that I'm giving you there a little bit of how this nomenclature comes up. And when you do a bioinformatic analysis in the human genome, you find 11 of these cysteine cathepsins. And they are labeled according to uh, letters in the alphabet, which I won't bother you with. So cathepsins and other cysteine proteases from parasites as well as from viral uh, genomic origins have become major targets for disease. And these include diseases, I mean, arthritis, osteoporosis, and immune-related diseases in general. Not only that, but atherosclerosis and cancer. In fact, because these cathepsins are also associated with parasitic diseases, we find them described in great detail as pharmaceutical targets in malaria and in Chagas disease, Lech leishmaniasis, and also in African sleeping sickness. Cysteine proteases synthesize themselves as inactive precursors. Remember that? The, we have a term for that that's called a zymogen. And so cysteine protease zymogens contain a promo or proto-domain. And that proto-domain blocks the access of the substrate to the active site. Now, when you see that in a protein, you see a proto-domain that acts to inhibit the function of the enzyme until that proto-domain is removed proteolytically. It means that the active form of that enzyme, in this case, the cysteine protease, must be extremely potent and controlled in the way that the uh, transcription translation of that polypeptide does not mean that the enzyme is active until there is a further conversion. We see this a lot in what? We see this a lot in peptide hormones too. Remember insulin, for example. Okay. So I just wanted to remind you of that. 
Okay, I'm going to be talking about a paper published in Molecular Cancer now. And, of course, it's going to tell us about the reprogramming and retailering of chromatin that generates gene expression that leads to tumorigenesis and, indeed, metastasis. And so, remember that the regulatory machinery in chromatin integrates environmental, remember, internal and external signals, and that those signals then modulate the level of gene expression, and that you have a whole host of metabolites that may be involved in chromatin modification that will lead to the alteration of gene expression. Now, right, right now, you already know we're deep in the forest with epigenetic phenomena. Recently, someone um, um, was, uh, I was interacting with was talking about epigenetics, and they were opining whether or not their particular disease that they were interested in may have some epigenetic phenomena associated with it that had not yet been uh, described and haven't responded to them yet, but I would totally agree. What I've been finding with my um, analysis of epigenetic phenomena in association with uh, human disease is that those same epigenetic phenomena, you know, methylation, acetylation, microRNA, as well as all those other covalent modifications like ubiquitinylation or propionylation, that those, and then the removal of all of those covalently bound uh, ligands is not only found in pathology, but is also found in healthy gene expression systems. In fact, it's a component of most of the, most of the mechanisms related to gene expression in the immune response. And that makes perfect sense because the immune response is a system that has to be constantly regulated moment by moment from the time of conception to the time of death in the human. Because the immune response has to be surveilling, but it has to be, um, it has to stand down, to use a military term, has to stand down until it's called upon. And then it has to be mobilized and regimented and deal only specifically with the new lesion or the new invasion, say of a uh, my, microbial pathogen, and then shut down again and shut itself down. So the immune response always has to surveil and surveil itself. And because epigenetic phenomena um, give you the mechanism that adds the um, capability of altering gene expression in real time without causing any slow process uh, to hinder that rapid activation. And the slow process could be something like the, the slow and regular coordination of transcription factors and all the adapter proteins to be able to turn on a suite of genes for, say, the next developmental sequion. Right? So epigenetics is always there involved in gene expression, but also, as I found when I did that whole profile on the endomembranous system, remember that, and there I was calling that cytoepigenetics, and I recently published a review article on this, that a great deal of epigenetic activity occurs between mitochondrial and nuclear gene 
expression in that the nuclear genome controls mitochondrial genome axis via epigenetic modification and that the mitochondrial genome um, turn, returns the favor by controlling some of the nuclear gene expression so that bioenergetics and cell fate are kept in a constantly dynamic pseudo-homeostatic stages. Okay. So remember all that, because we, we've talked about this in the past. So if I'm remembering it, I'm guessing you're remembering it too. Now, major thing in cancer, it, it cancer looking at it from a cellular physiological level, is to examine cell fate. So again, what, what are the different types of cell fate? Cell division, cell quiescence, ferritosis, apoptosis, autophagy, necrosis, and senescence. Right? And those are the major ones. Those are probably, that probably covers most of the ground. So ferritosis, I just mentioned. Now, ferritosis has been considered a subset of programmed cell death, also known as regulated cell death. Uh, so PCD or RCD, depending on what literature you're reading. So I, want, I, I tell you these different acronyms and these different um, uh, complex phrases naming a mechanism like Program cell death, also known as regulated cell death. So when you're reading the literature, you won't get confused. Talking about the same thing there. Program cell death is regulated cell death. Sometimes it's not the same thing. Here, as far as I can tell, the literature means the same. So PCD and RCD, all caps, are, are, are basically identical processes. And we've talked a lot about them. So ferritosis is one form of that. But it is different in many ways from apoptosis. What do we always say about apoptosis? It is a form of programmed cell death that usually does not lead to a pro-inflammatory response because it's a self-digestive system. Remember the, the DNA in the nucleus and the DNA in the mitochondria become fragmented and that fragmented DNA is then put into a limit, limit membranous system and that DNA is digested so that no nucleic acids are released in the cytoplasm because what happens when you get a lot of nucleic acid, particularly double-stranded DNA or the rare double-stranded RNA or comparatively maintained as a double-stranded RNA form, you turn on the toll-like receptors. You turn on the toll-like receptors, you get an immune response, you can generate an immune response, right? <laughs> so, so any fragmentation of DNA that is occurring on subcellular compartments has to be carefully controlled. And the, the classical apoptosis does control that. So classical apoptosis, that cell basically degenerates all of its macromolecular structures, no longer active, it's no longer going to divide, it's no longer capable of dividing, even with potential mutations, which is the one of the reasons apoptosis is occurring, or maybe because the cell is heavily infected with a virus, for example or an intracellular parasite or bacterium, then what comes along then is a macrophage community of the innate immune cells that comes along and digests what's left behind, right? Without signaling for an inflammatory response. So ferritosis isn't like that. Obviously, because it's called ferritosis, you get an idea that's going to involve 
Yes, iron, right? And we've talked about ferritosis. I'm remembering in the aging lectures, this would have been about a year ago, I went through all the different program cell death types. And there's even necrotosis. So it's ferritosis, necrotosis, apoptosis. Those are the three main types we carried uh, you through some detailed biochemical accounting of. And then, of course, I compared and contrasted that to autophagy, right, which doesn't, it doesn't uh, lead to or doesn't obtain cell death. So we were going through all that because I wanted you to understand what senescence was. And I'm remembering that was about a year ago. Okay. So I'm not going to go through the whole discussion now. I'm just going to tell you basically about ferritosis because this leads back into our discussion of antimicrobial peptides because of the cysteine protease domain in those in, in, in the CAMP proteins, right? So uh, this is where we came from. See how I'm dealing with a domain and a protein that is regulated by, remember the methylation pattern, remember the vitamin D uh, involvement, and the methylation pattern had to do with the cytochrome P450 enzyme, and remember it also had to do with various regulators of the um, tumor necrosis factor and interleukin-1 beta and TGF-beta, right, as transcription factors or as inducers of transcription factors. Remember that whole story we we're in in the um, oh, 20th to the 23rd lecture, maybe the 18th, 19th to the 23rd of these immunogenetic lectures. So that's all. keep all that in mind because the reason we got to this component of this lecture is because we're following along that cysteine protease uh, linkage. Now, why am I doing that? Well, one of the reasons is because I'm giving you the authentic biochemical environment, right? One thing isn't only happening whenever something's happening in the cell. Remember, they're all events. Um, you have simultaneous mechanisms going on. What I try to do in authentic biochemistry is reach out and apprehend those various pathways and signal transduction cascades and alterations of gene expression or cellular fate or cellular turnover or macromolecular changes in the endomembranous compartments and put them together as a composite understanding of the living system, not just at the cellular level, but the whole organism, because the immune response obviously is going to be signaling throughout, right? Generating some kind of um, non-inflammatory homeostasis. Okay. So the relationship, there's a relationship between ferritosis and the oncogenic RAS proteins. Now, RAS contributes to the induction of ferritosis through what's known as the RAS-BRAF MAP2 kinase mitogen-activated protein kinase kinase, mitogen-activated protein kinase family. Okay, now we've talked about all these, and I realize it's a long list of kinases, but remember what they are. That RAS-BRAF, that's the BRAF proto-oncogene, and that is a serine threonine kinase. The MAP2 kinase, MEC, is a mitogen-activated protein kinase that it will phosphorylate other kinases. That's why it's called a kinase kinase, right? Okay, so enough about the nomenclature. Now, the role of 
tumor suppressor gene tumor protein P53, also known as P53 or TP53. The role of that in ferritosis has recently been described. This is a paper published in 2020. So within the 2015 or 2020 period in the uh, referee peer review literature. So TP53 represses okay, a cysteine. Remember, that's a dimer of two cysteines, right? That's a disulfide. Right? The cysteine glutamate transporter solute carrier family seven membrane 11 which we've talked about also known affectionately as the slc7a11 now what does that do it regulates the expression of glutathione levels because remember glutathione one of the components of it is going to be the the cysteine right so you have to have a, a transporter that will control cysteine, that's a dimer of cysteine, and glutamate, because that's another amino acid in GSH, right? You know, GSH is a very important sulfhydryl group, okay? All right. Now, that protein regulates glutathione levels and therefore promotes ferritosis. And there is a communication between epigenetic modifications of the metabolic pathways that lead up to glutathione metabolism and the mechanism of ferritosis and tumorigenesis. Okay? So that's where, that's where we're getting to. That's why we're discussing this in immunoepigenetics. Bye for now.